The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, Part 4, The 1900s, Sigmund Freud and Psychoanalysis. Sigmund Freud was born May 6, 1856, in a small town, Freiburg, in Moravia. His father was a wool merchant with a keen mind and a good sense of humor. His mother was a lively woman, her husband's second wife and 20 years younger than he was. She was 21 years old when she gave birth to her first son, her darling Sigmund. Sigmund had two older half-brothers and would go on to have six younger siblings. When he was four or five years old, he wasn't sure, the family moved to Vienna, where he lived for most of the rest of his life. A brilliant child, always at the head of his class, Freud went to medical school, one of the few viable options for a bright Jewish boy in Vienna in those days. There, he became involved in research under the direction of a physiology professor named Ernst Bruck. Bruck believed in what was then a popular, if radical, notion that we now call reductionism. No other forces than the common physical-chemical ones are active within the organism. Freud would spend many years trying to reduce personality to neurology a cause that he later gave up on. Freud was very good at his research, though, concentrating on neurophysiology and even inventing a special cell staining technique. But only a limited number of positions were available, and there were others ahead of him. His mentor, Ernst Bruck, helped him to get a grant to study first with the great psychiatrist Charcot in Paris, and then with his rival Bernheim in Nancy. Both these gentlemen were investigating the use of hypnosis with hysterics. After spending a short time as a resident in neurology and director of a children's ward in Berlin, he came back to Vienna, married his very patient fiancée, Martha Bernays, and set up a practice in neuropsychiatry with the help of Joseph Brewer. Freud's books and lectures brought him both fame and ostracism from the mainstream of the medical community. He drew around him a number of very bright sympathizers who became the core of the psychoanalytic movement. Unfortunately, Freud had a penchant for rejecting people who did not totally agree with him. Some of them separated on friendly terms, others did not and still others went on to found competing schools of thought. Freud emigrated to England just before World War II, when Vienna became an increasingly dangerous place for Jews, especially one as famous as Freud. Not long afterward, he died of cancer of the mouth and jaw that he had suffered from for the last 20 years of his life. Now, in fact, it wasn't the cancer that killed him but an overdose of morphine that was given to him by his physician, 
a longtime friend who had promised not to let Freud suffer when the end came. The Unconscious Freud did not actually invent the idea of the conscious versus unconscious mind, but he was responsible for making it popular. The conscious mind is what you are aware of at any particular moment. Your present perceptions, memories, thoughts, fantasies, feelings. Working closely with the unconscious mind is what Freud called the preconscious, what we might today call available memory. Anything that can be easily made conscious. The memories you are not at the moment thinking about, but can readily bring to mind. If I were to ask you, what color socks did you put on this morning? You probably were not thinking about your socks a moment ago, but when I ask you the question, you can easily make conscious the memory of something you did earlier this morning. Now, no one has a problem with these two layers of mind. But Freud suggested that these are the smallest parts. The largest part, by far, is the unconscious. The unconscious includes all of the things that are not easily available to awareness, including many things that have their origins there, such as our drives and instincts, and things that are put there because we can't bear to look at them, such as memories and emotions associated with trauma. According to Freud, the unconscious is the source of our motivations, whether they be simple desires for food or sex, neurotic compulsions, or the motives of an artist or a scientist. And yet, we are often driven to deny or resist becoming conscious of these motives, and they are often available to us only in disguised form. And we will come back to this idea later. Freudian psychological reality begins with the world, full of objects. And among them is a very special object, the organism. The organism is special in that it acts to survive and reproduce, and is guided toward these ends by its needs, hunger, thirst, the avoidance of pain, and sex. A part, a very important part of the organism, is the nervous system, which has as one of its characteristics a sensitivity to the organism's needs. At birth, that nervous system is little more than that of any other animal. It's an, an it or an id. The nervous system, as the id, translates the organism's needs into motivational forces called, in German, Treiben, which has been translated as instincts or drives. Freud also called them wishes. This translation from need to wish is called the primary process. Now, the id works in keeping with the pleasure principle, 
which could be understood as a demand to take care of needs immediately. So just picture a hungry infant screaming itself blue. It doesn't know what it wants in any adult sense. It just knows that it wants something and it wants it now. The infant, in the Freudian view, is pure or nearly pure id. And the id is nothing if not the psychic representative of biology. Unfortunately, although a wish for food, such as for you as an adult, the the image of a juicy steak, well, that might be enough to satisfy the id. It, It isn't enough to satisfy the organism. The need only gets stronger, and the wishes just keep on coming. You may have noticed that when you haven't satisfied some need, such as the need for food, It begins to demand more and more of your attention until there comes a point where you can't think of anything else. This is the wish or drive breaking into consciousness. Now, luckily for the organism, there is that small portion of the mind that we discussed before, the conscious, that is hooked up to the world through the senses. Around this little bit of consciousness during the first year of a child's life, some of the it becomes I. Some of the id becomes ego or self. Now, the ego relates the organism to reality by means of consciousness. It searches for objects in the real world that will satisfy the wishes of the id and then creates a representation to the organism of its needs. Now, this problem-solving activity is called the secondary process. So the ego, unlike the id, functions according to the reality principle, the idea that says, take care of a need as soon as an appropriate object is found. It represents reality and to a considerable extent, reason. However, as the ego struggles to keep the id, and ultimately the organism, happy, it meets with obstacles in the world. Now, it occasionally meets with objects that actually assist it in attaining goals. And it keeps a record of the obstacles and the aids. In particular, it keeps track of rewards and punishments that are meted out by two of the most influential objects in the world of the child. And those are mom and dad. So, the nervous system keeps a record of things that one should avoid, as well as strategies to take to meet those needs. And that record of avoidance and strategies that work is called the superego, the higher self. Now, the superego isn't really completed until about seven years of age. And in some people, it's never completed. There are two aspects to the superego. One is conscience. Not consciousness, but conscience, from which we derive this 
internalization of punishments and warnings. Conscience is what reminds us of what we might call good and bad. Now, the other aspect of the superego is called the ego ideal. And that derives from rewards and positive models that are presented to the child. So the conscience and the ego ideal communicate their requirements to the ego with feelings like pride, shame, and guilt. It is as if we acquired in childhood a new set of needs and the accompanying wishes, but this time of a social rather than a biological origin. Unfortunately, these new wishes These social desires can easily conflict with the ones that come from the id. Because, you see, the superego represents society, and society often wants nothing better than to have you never satisfy your needs at all. Freud noted that at different times in our lives, different parts of our skin give us the greatest pleasure. Later theorists would call these erogenous zones, from eros, meaning pleasure. It appeared to Freud that an infant found its greatest pleasure in sucking, especially at the breast. In fact, Babies have a penchant for bringing nearly everything in their environment in contact with their mouths. And this is the same with animals as well. Most animals explore the world with their mouths. Think about what happens when you present your dog with a new toy. It goes right into the mouth. So the animal, the it, explores the world with the mouth. Now a bit later in life, the child focuses on the anal pleasures of holding it all in or letting go. By age three or four, the child may have discovered the pleasure of touching or rubbing against his or her genitalia. And only later in our sexual maturity do we find our greatest pleasure in sexual intercourse. Now, in these observations, Freud had the makings of a psychosexual stage theory. And these five stages are oral, anal, phallic, latent, and genital. The oral stage lasts from birth to about 18 months. The focus of pleasure is, of course, the mouth. Sucking and biting are favorite activities. The anal stage lasts from about 18 months to three or four years old. The focus of the pleasure is the anus. Holding in or letting go are greatly enjoyed. The phallic stage lasts from three or four to five, six, seven years old. The focus of the pleasure is the genitalia, and masturbation is very common in children at this stage. The latent stage lasts from that five, six, seven to puberty, somewhere around 12 years old. During this stage, Freud believed that the sexual impulse was suppressed in service of learning. And I think it's important to note that 
While most children seem to be fairly calm sexually during their middle school years, elementary middle school years, perhaps up to a quarter of them are still quite busy masturbating or playing doctor with other children. In Freud's repressive era, these children were at least quieter than their modern counterparts. The genital stage begins at puberty and represents the resurgence of the sex drive in adolescence and the more specific focusing of pleasure in sexual intercourse. Freud felt that masturbation, oral sex, homosexuality, and many other things that we find acceptable in adulthood today were immature expressions of earlier sexual stages. Now, this is a true stage theory, meaning that the Freudians believe that we all go through all of these stages in this order at pretty close to the same ages. Each stage has a certain difficult task associated with it, where problems are more likely to arise. For the oral stage, this crisis is weaning, removing, being removed from the breast to solid food. For the anal stage, the crisis is potty training, being forced by someone else to do with your body what they insist, not what you want to do. But for the phallic stage, the crisis is called the Oedipal Crisis, named after the ancient Greek story of King Oedipus, who inadvertently killed his father and married his mother. Here's how the Oedipal Crisis works. The first love object for all of us is our mother. We want her attention. We want her affection. We want her caresses. We want her in a broadly pleasure-based sexual way. The young boy, however, has a rival for his mother's charms, and that is his father. And his father is bigger, stronger, smarter. He gets to sleep with mother while Junior just pines away in his own lonely little bed, so dad is the enemy. Now, it's about this time that a little boy recognizes this archetypal situation and about the same time becomes aware of some of the more subtle differences between boys and girls, other than hair length and clothing styles. Now, from his naive perspective, the little boy thinks that the difference is that he has a penis and girls do not. Now, at this point in life, it seems to the child that having something is infinitely better than not having something. So he is pleased with this state of affairs. But the question arises, what happened to hers? Where is the little girl's penis? Um, perhaps she, she, she lost it somehow. Or perhaps, well, perhaps it was cut off. And perhaps that could happen to him as well. And who would do such a thing? Dad. Now this is the beginning of castration anxiety, a slight misnomer for the fear 
of losing one's penis. So to return to the story, the boy, recognizing his father's superiority and fearing for his penis, engages some of his ego defenses. He displaces his sexual impulses from mother to girls and later to women. And he identifies with the aggressor. He identifies with dad and attempts to become more and more like dad, that is to say, a man. After a few years of latency, the little boy enters adolescence and the world of mature heterosexuality. The girl also begins her life in love with her mother. So we have this problem of getting her to switch her affections to her father before the Oedipal process can take place. Freud accomplishes this with the idea of penis envy. The young girl, too, has noticed the difference between boys and girls. And since not having something is not as good as having something, well, she feels that she somehow doesn't measure up. She'd like to have one, too, along with all the, the power and the benefits associated with it. Or at the very least, she'd like a penis substitute, such as a baby. As every child knows, you need a father as well as a mother to have a baby. So the young girl sets her sights on dad. Now, dad, of course, is already taken. So the young girl displaces from him to boys and later to men. She identifies with mom, the woman who got the man that that little girl really wanted. Now, notice there's one thing missing here. The girl does not suffer from the powerful motivation of castration anxiety, since she cannot lose what she doesn't have. Freud felt that this lack of great fear accounts for the fact, as he saw it, that women were both less firmly heterosexual than men and somewhat less morally inclined. Now, before you get too upset by this less than flattering account of women's sexuality, Rest assured that many people have responded to it, and I will discuss those responses in a later section. Mm -hmm.